This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to CXMH. My name is Robert Bohr and I'm your host. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Sussman. He's a clinical psychologist as well as a mental health advocate and blogger. If you're not familiar with him, I would highly recommend that you check out his website, follow him on social media, all that. He's a great resource for anybody who wants to read or learn or anything like that around the topics of mental health, which I assume you do since you're listening to the show. Our discussion today is actually based off of a couple articles that he wrote that I thought were really good. The first one was an article describing eight very common barriers that prevent people from getting mental health treatment, things like stigma and shame, as well as practical things like not being able to afford it or not knowing how to find a mental health professional near you. And then he did a follow-up post on how to overcome those eight barriers. So today we talk through all of those going kind of one by one through what the barrier is and then what are practical ways that we can help to overcome those barriers for ourselves or for others. It's a very practically useful episode and one I think is pretty important in terms of helping people to get mental health treatment, to get healthy, things like that. We talk about a huge variety of topics, so it's a little bit longer than a normal episode. I had considered cutting it in half and making it two episodes, but thought they would be a little on the short side. So I wanted to just give it to you all at once. I think it's a great episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed getting to have the conversation. Huge thanks to Dr. Sussman for being on this show. And here you go. Hey, welcome back. We are so excited today to be joined by Dr. David Sussman. Dr. Sussman is a clinical psychologist and mental health advocate. He grew up in Virginia, received a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Virginia, went on to get a master's degree in clinical psychology, and then a PhD in clinical psychology. He, his work experience has included working at a hospital for 24 years, uh, as well as a number of other places, and he currently serves as the assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Kentucky, as well as the director of the Jesse G. Harris Jr. Psychological Services Center, as well as being a husband and a father uh, and a dog owner, as we talked about a little bit before this. Dr. Sussman, how are you doing this morning? Hey, I'm great, Robert. Thanks for uh, having me. Of course. Uh, I forgot to mention you're also a blogger, a pretty popular one uh, from what I can tell. I know that I follow your, your articles pretty closely. They're, I find them pretty helpful. So is there anything other than all of that that, that you want to tell folks about yourself? No, I think that's a great introduction, and you know there may be some other things that come up as we go along, but thanks for the introduction. Yeah, of course. So to start with, before we really get into it, what got you into this profession? What got you, you know, what drives your passion? Because obviously you've been working in the field for a long time, and you also write about it in, in your spare time. So what's behind all that? Yeah, so I'm one of these guys that started out as a pre-med major in college, and then when I encountered uh, organic chemistry, that changed my mind pretty quickly. So uh, <laughs> I found that uh, I enjoyed psychology a lot more, so I uh, was a psychology major, and that kind of put me on my path to uh, becoming a psychologist. And uh, since then, I've you know enjoyed it. It's a career with a lot of variety, and uh, it's gratifying to try to be able to help people. Absolutely. How have you found the writing part? Because I know that you have your career in hospitals and treatments and things like that. And then you've also kind of transitioned into blogging and writing. You've been doing that for a few years. Do you find people respond really well to that? I mean, I would guess if you're still doing it for after a couple of years, you do. But how is that, the people that you encounter and the way that you get to help people, how is it different there than it is in maybe your day-to-day career? 
Yeah, it's been a real uh, interesting experience because I've, I've been in the field about 25 years and uh, I started blogging almost three years ago now. And uh, it was just something, you know, I thought about and thought, well, hey, let's give this a try. So I started doing this mental health blog. And uh, I have been really surprised by uh, how well it's been received. I get a lot of comments and questions. I've been surprised at sort of the international reach. You know, I get things from people and countries all over the place. And um, so I think obviously it's a topic people want to talk about and they want to learn about, they want to hear about. And so the mental health community, I think, is pretty active. And there's a lot of great advocates out there that I've been able to meet including yourself. And, uh, you know, I think it's just a, it's a neat space to be in right now. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think when we talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago, we talked about kind of this overwhelming response from people online who are wanting to have these types of conversations uh, that maybe culture as a large doesn't have too often. So um, I know that I appreciate your voice in kind of that space, that online area as well. So all right, so let's get into uh, our main topic for today is uh, kind of barriers to treatment and then maybe how we can help. And this subject is one that is based on kind of a series of posts that you did, or I guess two posts. And they're both, from what I understand, some of your most popular posts ever, right? Yeah, in fact, the, uh, the first one I wrote, which is called Eight Reasons Why People Don't Get Treatment for Mental Illness, which I wrote over two years ago, has been consistently, ever since then, the most single uh, popular post in terms of numbers of views. So it's been just very, very steady and for over two years now. And so then this year, which is almost you know about two years later, I came back and wrote kind of a sequel, which was called Overcoming the Eight Reasons Why People Don't Get Treatment, and as an attempt to sort of follow up and offer some ideas to try to break through some of the barriers. And that, that's also, also been a pretty popular one. So why do you think that these ones in particular, because you write about a, a huge variety of topics, why do you think that these ones are so popular, that they're hitting so hard with them, some people? That, you know, that's a great question, Robert, and I, don't, and I don't know that I have really the entire answer, but from the comments I get and the questions I get, I do get the sense that there are a lot of people and a lot of families, particularly, or, you know, family members who may have people in their family who are struggling with mental health challenges who are in that situation where either they're finding it difficult to, uh, to find appropriate treatment or... Uh, some people just don't want treatment at all for various reasons we can talk about. But I, I think it does just strike a chord because there is seemingly this unmet need. Mental health care either either can't get it or, or don't want to get it. Well, so that's, so that's, I guess, my first question is to buy into these two posts. Obviously, we need to, to buy into the idea that people aren't getting the mental health treatment that we would say maybe they need or they deserve or would be good for them to get. Is that the case? Are people not getting mental health treatment? Yeah, it's definitely the case. Um, and the kind of landmark study, which now goes back to about 2004, so it's you know getting a little bit dated, but the World Health Organization, they looked at this issue of, of who's getting treatment and who's not getting treatment. And this, this report they put out kind of summarized, I think, about 37 different studies but, you know, the bottom line, which is sort of the, you know, the aha statement is that between 30 and 80 percent of the people who have mental health issues never receive treatment. And then they broke it down a little bit as far as different diagnostic groups. And there is a lot of variability, but, you know, there's rates anywhere between 30 and 80 percent, depending on the diagnosis. Yeah. And you have some of those specifics in the posts. And obviously, I will link both these yes. posts in the show notes, but okay, so let's get into it. There's, you've identified in these posts eight major reasons, right? And so what I think would be cool is if we kind of look at them bit by bit, uh, and then kind of also read some from the, the site, not read, but discuss some from the follow-up post on how we can help overcome these. And what sure. I think is cool about these barriers that you've written about is that there's such a span, right? There's some that are very like individual and personal, uh, right. like why I might not receive mental health treatment. And then there's some that are more cultural, like stigmas and things like that. And then there's some that are 
not partisan, but are political in terms of, you know, access to treatment and coverage and the amount of professionals in the field and things like that. So I think you've kind of covered a, a big scope here, uh, which is, I think, good because I think a lot of times, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago with Gabe Howard, but people really love identifying just one thing. This is the problem. This is the cause of this problem. And that's very rarely the case. I think that's right. And as we go through these, I think it becomes more and more obvious. It's a huge, complicated, you know, multi-factor kind of issue. And, you know, it does go all the way from just individual concerns or how people think about it all the way up to sort of systemic issues that, you know, are big, big, tough issues that are still still going to need a lot of work to try to fix some of that. Absolutely. Well, so the first one that you've written about here is one that I think a lot of people will resonate with and maybe have heard about before, but the first one is fear and shame. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, there is still pervasive uh, stigma. Um, I, I really prefer actually to use the term discrimination because I think it's probably a little bit more accurate overall yeah. because that pulls in kind of the idea of, of not only kind of this attitude toward mental illness, but it really also pulls in the fact that people um, are discriminated against in many ways, such as, you know, employment or, you know, other kinds of settings. But anyway, you know, it's still very widespread and, and people have these negative views about having a mental illness, being labeled as having a mental illness. They don't want to be thought of as, you know, quote unquote, mentally ill. They think if they get that label, it's going to impact them negatively in various ways. So, you know, that's that's a huge one. That's a huge one. So what can I do if either for myself, I feel that fear and that shame and that stigma and that discrimination, how can I overcome it? Or if it's somebody that I know that I care about, right? We have a lot of folks that listen that um, have a friend or a family member or a, a church member if they're a pastor or something like that. How can we help them overcome that, kind of the, the two sides of that? Yeah, I think we need to first give the message to people that it's okay to uh, have feelings that you are concerned about your mental health. You know, it is a, an illness. I mean, you know, it would be like saying, well, you know, are you afraid or are you ashamed of having heart disease or are you afraid or are you ashamed of having diabetes? And I think most people would say, you know, no. And so I think drawing that comparison that mental illness and addiction, these are just other kinds of illness. You know, it's okay to reach out for help. And, uh, you know, it's also important to let people know they're, they're not alone. There's, there's help out there. Um, so I think as more and more people come forward and as more and more people are open and talking about this, we have seen some, I guess you might say, sunlight or daylight, you know, shining on this issue now in a more positive way to say, hey, it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to have these feelings. You know, we know that from a lot of studies that as many as one in four adults, at least in the United States, is going to experience some sort of mental health issue at some point in their lifetime. So it's very common. This is not, this is not a rare thing we're talking about. Yeah. And I was going to ask, and I think you touched on it briefly there, but in your career so far, have you seen some movement in this area? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I worked for over 20 years in a large uh, public psychiatric hospital. And uh, when I first started there, uh, which was, you know, over 20 years ago, it was still fairly common that, you know, you would have people who had been there 10, 20, maybe even 30 years, you know, they were basically living out their lives there. These were kind of large warehouses in some ways. And so we really moved away from that. And we have seen much more of a push for people to be living in the community and not, you know, stuck in these hospitals. And I think the attitude has definitely come a long way. It's hard to see the change on a day-to-day -day basis. But when you step back and look at the long view over 10 or 20 years, you can, you can really see a difference. Yeah, I would guess that the internet, the the major rise of the internet and people being able to create their own websites with ease and things like that would play a role in that as well, right? Because I mean, you talked about connecting with a bunch of people and I know that even in the couple years that I've been doing this type of thing online, I've found, you know, a huge community of people that's willing to talk about these things and push back against mental health stigma and so I would say that and hopefully I I would guess you would agree that that uh, has the potential to, to help in this area as well. I, I totally agree. You know, the Internet is such a powerful uh, medium. And, 
it's immediate, it's uh, low cost, if not free. Almost everyone has some level of access. Uh, people can say what's on their mind. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think we would be where we are now without just some of the advent of internet and social media to help people get their message out. Yeah. So the we can move on kind of the second one here, lack of insight. Now this is a really interesting one that maybe but we don't we don't think about often because we think more about the stigma and the shame and things like that, but what do you mean when you're talking about lack of insight? Yeah, so there's a subset of people with mental health concerns who really believe there's nothing wrong with them. And so as a result, they don't feel like they're sick, they don't feel like they need any help. That's what's called a lack of insight, when you don't really realize or recognize that you have some sort of uh, you know, health concern. And this is really common or more common uh, among people who have more serious and more severe mental illnesses, things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe depression, because in those groups, you can have up to half or more who actually have a condition, and here's, a, here's the vocabulary word for the day, but it's, <laughs> but it's called a nosognosia, and I, you know, I'm not even going to try to spell that for you, but uh, it's actually uh, akin to people who have had strokes and who many times as a result of a stroke, they lack insight into some of the difficulties that they're having. So this is actually a brain dysfunction. And so for many people with more severe mental illness, they have this condition, which really is characterized by this lack of insight. So, you know, you talk to them and you say, hey, why don't you go get treatment or why don't you go get help? They're going to say, oh, nothing's wrong with me. I'm not sick. You know, don't worry. And so if you believe, if you really, truly believe, they're not trying to, you know, fool you. If you really, truly believe I'm not sick, why in the world would you want to go get any treatment or help for that? Right. Right. So that sounds like a, a pretty tricky situation for the other person, right? Because obviously we can't make somebody go get any kind of mental health treatment that they don't necessarily want to get. What What would you recommend in terms of navigating that if you're somebody who is really worried about uh, someone that you care about, someone that you love, but that they don't they don't see anything wrong with them? Uh, again, not that they're just kind of trying to push it off, but that they genuinely don't see that. Yeah, and I'm sure you're going to have listeners who are family members who are going to immediately recognize what we're talking about because they have family members who have had this issue. And it's extremely challenging. You know, imagine trying to convince somebody that they need treatment or help and they just, you know, firmly believe they don't. So, you know, I think there's a lot of persuading, a lot of cajoling that goes on to try to get people to go and get a checkup or get an evaluation. And sometimes it's really, really tough to do that. But I think, uh, you know, if, you, if you're a family member, you have to kind of stay gentle and persistent and sort of, you know, keep expressing your concerns. If you're the person receiving that feedback, I think you want to at least listen to your family and say, well, you know, I, you know, I, don't, I think I'm fine. But if they're so concerned about me, yeah, sure, maybe I'll go get a checkup and I'll see, you know, see what a professional would say. And then many times, you know, then the professional can say, well, you know, gosh, you, you do have symptoms that may be, you know, consistent with depression or whatever. But it's really difficult. I mean, it is hugely difficult. And sometimes this escalates to the point in really severe cases where people, you know, may be uh, psychotic or hallucinating or even, you know, get to where they're not taking care of themselves. And ultimately, then you get to a situation where the family may have to go get a court order to get the person evaluated at a hospital. Mm. Man, and I can imagine a situation like that would be kind of increasing the stress all around if you're having to consider going to get a court order for someone that you care about, you know, and so I would imagine that that's a, all around a, a tricky and, and stressful situation. It, it's tricky and also because most states, if you want to get somebody hospitalized, you have to meet this criterion that says they present a danger to themselves or others. And so, you know, if they do present, you know, if they do meet that, so let's say they're threatening someone or they're threatening to harm themselves, then it's pretty easy to get that court process to take someone for an evaluation. But what if somebody is just minding their own business, but they're really sick, you know, they're maybe really depressed or they're having some other symptoms, but they're really not hurting themselves or not hurting anybody else, then you're kind of stuck, you know, so then you don't even perhaps have that avenue to go through the court. Hmm. The third one here is kind of related to that one, uh, and maybe a smaller scale. The third one that you write about is limited awareness. Yeah, this one is way more common. Yeah, so what's, what's the difference here in terms of not 
not seeing that there's anything wrong or just kind of having a limited awareness. Yeah, this is way more common. So this would be someone who's, you know, maybe feeling a little sad, a little anxious, something's going on, maybe they don't feel their best, having some trouble with sleep or appetite, or, you know, they may be having some mild concerns or symptoms, uh, which end up being actually indicative of a possible mental illness diagnosis. But, you know, they dismiss it or they minimize it or they say, oh, you know, everybody gets stressed out or, you know, things aren't that bad or that kind of thing. When, in fact, you know, they may actually have a condition that's reaching a level that may warrant some treatment. And so, you know, the limited awareness is just our, our everyday tendency to sort of, uh, you know, deny or minimize things. And so sometimes you have to pay attention to those signals, you know, in terms of the overcoming this. You may need to recognize hey, I'm struggling a little bit, and go ahead and go get a checkup, get an opinion, and see if there is perhaps some therapy, some medication, some options that might help you. So this one's really interesting to me because, A, I think it, it ties in a lot with the stigma and shame, right? When, when we think of, you know, oh, other people have it worse or everybody gets stressed out, right? Maybe some of that comes into play where you think mental health treatment is only for the, the crazy people or something like that. Yeah. But also, I think it's understandable. So where's the, where's the line, right? Because everybody does get stressed out. Everybody does have problems. And one thing that I see a lot in talking to people is where is the line between, hey, I'm really stressed out or, hey, it would be beneficial for me to go get some mental health treatment or like, hey, I'm really worried about things, but it makes sense or, hey, I'm maybe in the realm of, of an anxiety disorder or things like that, where would you say the line is? Yeah, so the line, you know, as a healthcare professional who sometimes ends up on the other side of the desk, you know, providing a diagnosis for someone, you know, we're looking at kind of three things. Level of distress. So that's one thing. So, you know, if you're mildly upset or something, maybe it's not too big a deal. But if that keeps getting worse and worse and worse, that's a red flag. So level of distress. There's two more. The second one is, is duration. How long does it last? So, you know, I'm a little sad for a couple of days, probably no big deal. But if it goes on two weeks, three weeks, a month, six weeks, that begins to become, again, another red flag. Third and final thing we always look for is kind of level of, of impairment. In other words, how does this begin interfering with your daily activities? So, you know, if you're still doing okay, getting to work, getting to school, that's probably fine. But now you're starting to miss work, you're oversleeping, you can't go to class anymore. So it's beginning to really interfere with your daily functioning. So when you start seeing those kinds of red flags in those kinds of areas, then that I think is when you want to pay more attention and you really want to try to think about seeking some help. Is there a time where you would still recommend so say maybe it isn't, hey, I'm reaching the level where I think there might be a diagnosis, but I am just very stressed out or I am just very unhappy. Is there still benefit in, in your opinion to, to getting some mental health treatment? You know, maybe I'm not, I'm not meeting the diagnostic criteria for whatever, but I could still use counseling or something like that. Is there still benefit to that? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's Robert, that's always going to be, a, I think, an individual decision. But you know, counselors and therapists see people at all levels. And so, you know, even if somebody has some mild discomfort or distress, a lot of times people come in just wanting to, you know, work on goals or try to get, you know, more organized or try to, uh, you know, become a better, you know, spouse or parent or something. So you know, I, I think there's a great benefit, even, even if you're not at the level where, you know, things are really falling apart. Yeah. The fourth one, I think, ties in really closely with some of the this that we're talking about, and it's feelings of inadequacy. And you write about people believing that they're inadequate or that they're a failure if they have to admit that something's wrong with them. And to me, that ties really closely with the stigma and the shame that we talked about in the first one. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So again, this one's pretty common, but you know, I think in in our society, you know, at least at least in America and probably other places as well, you know, you get the message that hey, you ought to be able to handle things, just buck up, just get over it. You know, when adversity comes along, you just kind of power through it. And so we're sort of socialized to think, you know, you, you're not supposed to give up, you're not supposed to admit you can't handle something, you're not supposed to admit that you're not coping well. 
And so, uh, you know, you get the message that, hey, if I have to go, quote, ask for help, I, there's something wrong with me or, or I'm a loser, I'm a failure, you know, those kind of things. People don't want to admit that they have personal shortcomings. And so, and then the other message is that, oh, I ought to be able to cope better with this, you know. And so because I'm not, then they get into blaming themselves. Well, because I'm not coping well, there must really be something wrong with me. So you get into this sort of vicious circle um, or cycle of, of negative thinking. And that really, again, keeps people from reaching out for help. So I imagine you would suggest some of the same things that we talked about for the first one, but how do I help a friend kind of battle this one or help myself battle this one? What, what advice do you have there? Um, I, again, it's sort of similar to what we already touched on, but, but just you know, helping people see that everybody is going to need help sometimes. Nobody's perfect. We all struggle. We all have challenges. It's okay to get some counseling. It's okay to get some professional assistance. And uh, I think just, you know, again, encouraging people that, you know, it doesn't mean that you're somehow inferior or inadequate. We all struggle. You know, think about all the demands that we have and all the stress that we're under just, you know, as a society and as individuals. And so everybody needs to just hear that message that, you know, sometimes you're going to need some help. You have a, a line in the second piece here that I think really hits home. It says, instead, consider this. Would you consider yourself inadequate or a loser if you had cancer or diabetes? And right. I think that's a, a fantastic parallel. You know, I know that we use kind of these parallels a lot of times. I talk a lot about, you know, would you ask for help with a broken leg or things like that? Um, and I think that's a, a good way of kind of reframing it in terms of this isn't something that is happening because you're not a good enough person or something like that. Yeah, and you know, with mental health issues, a lot of times they're hidden. You know, if you have a broken leg and you're wearing a cast or on crutches, people can kind of see that, and so they're going to give you some sort of automatic sympathy. But if you're depressed or anxious, people may not see that. And so people carry around a lot of things that are hidden, and so they don't, you know, they're not automatically going to get that support from other people. Yeah. The next one, and we're getting into some of maybe the more societal things here, but the next one that you talk about is distrust. Do you mean distrust of mental health professionals or distrust of other people or friends or family? Or what do you, what do you mean here? Um, I, you know, I, when I wrote it, I was thinking primarily about people are reluctant to go to a therapist or a doctor and, you know, reveal their personal information. Um, they don't want to, you know, tell a stranger about their problems is the thought a lot of people have. They also are worried that the information is somehow not going to be confidential. And so they are concerned that if they go and they start talking about very private concerns that somehow it's going to get out. So I was thinking sort of more so of that just distrust of the helping relationship. Yeah. That's kind of the, you know, the main part of it. So what's your, as a, a helping professional, as someone who works in the mental health field, what's your response to that in terms of confidentiality and, and you know, being worried about things like that? Yeah, I, you know, I think to some degree people have this sense that healthcare professionals do have a requirement to maintain confidentiality, which is very true. But I think what they don't perhaps realize is just how solidly committed we are to that promise. And so, you know, we're bound not only by ethics, but also by laws that we have to keep someone's healthcare information private and confidential. The only exceptions are going to be when you get into those situations of personal safety. So, you know, if someone is threatening self-harm, they're threatening aggression, you discover there's some child abuse going on, something of that nature, some really extreme situation. That's the only place where we can break that confidentiality and, you know, make reports to public safety authorities. But otherwise, we are just, you know, going to do our best to keep that information private. Yeah, and I think you touched on a good point there that, that people have that, that idea but might, may not know quite how far that goes. You know, I think one of the things that I tell people often that they're really shocked by is even as far as recommendations, you know, if you recommend Joe Bob to come see me and then you call me later and say, hey, did Joe Bob come see you? I can't even say like, yes, he did without Joe Bob's permission. Right. You know, it goes that in depth of the confidentiality things. I mean, the, the longest part in the ethics code has to do with confidentiality. It's, you know, right up front there. So I think yep. that's a really good point. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that, you know, the other piece of that 
is that's the basis of the therapeutic relationship is that trust. And so for people to be able to open up with, with a therapist, a counselor, whoever, they have to have that trust that what, what they're going to reveal and what they're going to talk about is going to be held uh, confidential. Absolutely. Are there different populations that may have more of a inherent distrust of mental health professionals because they're kind of part of this medical system, right? They're kind of part of this systematic system that sounds super dumb, uh, but that maybe they have a better reason to, to not trust or things like that in your experience? Um, I'm certainly not an expert in this question, but I do know a little bit because, you know, there have been some studies that show that um, some ethnic minority populations are more reluctant to seek health care because of some of these trust issues. I know in some cases the uh, LGBTQ community has had some of that same reluctance. So their uh, older adults may have some of that. So there, you know, there are some demographic kind of differences that impact health seeking. And that, that has been pretty widely studied, but again, I'm, I'm not a real expert in that. Hey guys, Robert here. Just wanted to pop in real quick and say that if you're interested in a little bit more about the question that I just asked about different people groups having more reservations, more skepticism, more distrust of mental health professionals and things like that, I would strongly recommend going back and checking out episode 25 of this show on race, faith, and mental health. We had Dr. Sherry Moloch and Dr. Amber Thornton on, and they spoke some about exactly that topic. So just wanted to throw that in there and back to the show. The other part of it that goes into the trust issue is sometimes a symptomatic issue. So let's say, for example, you have someone who happens to be a bit paranoid, you know, which could be for several different reasons, several different diagnoses. But if someone's a little paranoid, then obviously they're going to be quite reluctant to seek help or to reveal some of their concerns. Yeah. One of the things that I try to point out to people when they're talking to me about this type of thing is to read the informed consent that you sign right up front and ask as many questions about that as you want. Because there are obviously situations where, you know, if you're going to counseling within a church, they might have built into that that they could talk to a pastor or something, right? So read the informed consent. They have to put everything in there right up front, the thing you sign, they have to put everything in there that has to do with the counseling relationship and the barriers and things like that. So I always encourage friends who are going, I say, hey, read that. Don't just, you know, skim it and sign it. Read it and then ask any question that you want to. Uh, It can take however long you want it to, but you you need to understand what you're kind of getting into so that you can fully trust them. You don't have kind of these lingering questions throughout. Right. Right, yeah. And so, you know, healthcare professionals are required to provide that information up front. But I'm sure, you know, you've seen this happen. You know, you go to a doctor's office or whatever, you're a new patient, they give you a bunch of forms to fill out. One of those typically is your consent form, which, you know, maybe just look like kind of a big page full of gibberish that you may or may not even really read very closely. You just sign it. And so then, the, you know, the the therapist or doctor or whoever may not take the time to really go through some of those details or nuances with you. So uh, I do think mental health care workers do take more time in explaining those kind of things than perhaps maybe some other health care areas do. But it's, you know, it's really important to, to, to understand that. You know, it's funny, as we, as you were just talking about that, I was thinking, man, I don't remember the last time that when I signed all that stuff at like a, a doctor, doctor, that I read any of it. I just flip through it's always you know on this clipboard and things like that so real quick I do want to ask because I I work a lot with adolescents and college age and things like that there's a little bit of a difference in underage clients right because there's some built-in ability to talk to parents and I know that that for a lot of teenagers or adolescents is a major sticking point of how can I trust this person if they're going to run and tell my my mom my dad my guardian everything that I tell them that's right what's the I mean yeah how do you navigate that I I work primarily with adults so again I'm not the expert on on uh, adolescents but the the rules are a little bit different you know if they're under 18 in most settings, you have to, in most counseling settings, you know, you're going to have to get the parents to actually sign for them to receive services, and then the parents do retain 
kind of an open privilege to find out what's going on in therapy. Now, that being said, I do know a lot of great adolescent counselors who will sort of negotiate that arrangement, you know, and they may say to the, you know, the teenager who they're working with, you know, what we're going to do here is I'm only going to talk to your parents if, you know, you bring up some serious safety issues and then otherwise I'm willing to give you a promise that I'll keep the rest of it between you and me. And so, you know, I have seen people do that kind of arrangement. Right. But, you know, obviously the parents are going to need to be involved and expect to be involved if kind of really serious matters come up. And so, yeah, that's sort of a different landscape. And then, you know, if people are being seen in the school or college setting, as you probably know way better than I do, you know, there's all this thing called FERPA, which is, you know, confidentiality of educational records, whereas over here in the healthcare world, we have this thing called HIPAA, which is confidentiality of healthcare records. And there's a lot of, you know, legal mumbo jumbo attached to that, which is really important. But, you know, I, I think you almost need to have like an expert you can consult in some of these cases when you get into these questions about, well, what's really confidential with, you know, with teenagers and with some of these other populations. Right, right. And I guess the big point here is that it's, for the most part, at least in my experience, it's never the mental health professional's goal to tell somebody else something about you. It's never their goal. It's always their goal to keep it as confidential as they can while keeping you safe. It's never just, hey, I'm going to tell your parents everything or tell your whoever everything just because I, there's kind of a legal out there, right? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. No. So the next one here is hopelessness. And I think this one is a, another one that might resonate really personally with some people. What do you mean hopelessness? So there's a lot of people who are really in such pain and distress uh, because of mental health concerns that they, they reach a point where, you know, maybe they've tried some treatment or maybe they haven't, but they get to a point where they just think nothing's ever going to get better, um, nothing's going to help them. Um, maybe they've tried treatment and they feel like it didn't work. Maybe they had a really bad experience with a the therapist and they don't want to go back. Um, so for all these different reasons, people can get really, really demoralized. And that usually, you know, there's usually some underlying depression or there's, you know, some clinical reasons for that, but people can get just really hopeless. And so as a result of that, they've, they've just given up on treatment. So what's the pushback on that? I mean, you mentioned it there that there, there's sometimes there's some clinical reasons. There may be reason, you know, they may have seen a therapist that wasn't good or they received a treatment that didn't quite work for them, or I know when we get into medications, it, sometimes it takes a long time for to find a medication that works well for that person, right? So in, in a, a kind of a mental health landscape where there's so many different types of treatments and styles of therapy and different medications, how, how do we find hope in that? I mean, there's, it could take a while, right? I mean, what do we do with that? Yeah, I, and I, I, I've had this conversation with a lot of people, but I, I just tell them, you know, even though you've tried some things that haven't worked for you, there are other options that we can consider because there's a bunch of different medications. There's a lot of different types of therapy and counseling. And then there's also just that kind of fit between you and your, your healthcare provider. And, you know, you may not hit it off really well with someone. So, you know, you might try somebody else that you really do hit it off with. And that can also then bring you some renewed hope that, hey, you know, this person I like better, they seem perhaps more knowledgeable, uh, you know, so there are always other options, and I think that's the message. Um, and it is a bit of trial and error, you know, I wish we had kind of that magic bullet, you know, or pill to just fix everybody, but we don't, and so sometimes you have to go through several medications, you may need to try a couple different types of therapy before you find that combination that's really going to work for you. So my message is I always just tell people, you know, we haven't tried every option yet. And so if you're willing to consider trying something else, then we've still got a lot of other tools in the toolbox for you. Is there a way for people, whether it's for them or for a loved one, to kind of keep track of these things? Because, you know, you look at a, a therapist's website or something like that, and it says, you know, I do CBT and DBT and who knows what else. And, you know, there's all sorts of this lingo and then these medication names and things like that. That's a, a lot of, again, mumbo jumbo that doesn't mean much to the common person. 
what's the best way of digging through all of that to make sure that you're trying different options, that you're doing different things? I mean, how, how do we even navigate that? Yeah, I, I wrote another post, which people may want to look at, that's called something like how to find a good psychotherapist, because, you know, that's, it's a huge, that's a huge, you know, challenge, really, because you go on these therapy directory websites and you see name after name and it lists all their credentials and all the therapies. And as a, as a lay person, you know, as a mental health consumer, if you will, you, you don't know what all that means, nor should you be expected to. And so, you know, I, I really do even sometimes say word of mouth is probably not a bad thing. If you've got friends or family and they, they've been to a therapist, a doctor, someone they thought was great, that was really effective, that was really compassionate, that's probably a good place to start. And, um, you know, I do think, you know, you've got to go and make that connection. And then it's up to the therapist to then say, hey, for your condition, these are the recommended treatments. You're, you're not supposed to have to figure that out. That's the job of the professional to help guide you and, you know, different therapists are going to have different ideas, but you want to let them give their opinions as to what they think will help you. And then you always want to ask that question, you know, is this something that there's research to say that it works? Because, you know, you want to be using effective treatments. Well, and that was kind of another question that I had there. Is there evidence that mental health services, whether it's counseling or, you know, other types of things, is there research that they do help? Oh, yeah. Overwhelming. And, you know, again, I can't cite you all those different studies, but yeah, there's overwhelming evidence that psychotherapy works. Actually, I wrote a blog post on that now that I think about it called Psychotherapy Works. It does have some <laughs> of that evidence. Uh, yeah, I forget about some of the things I've written about. Um, and then, you know, there's there's tons of studies about different medications and, you know, which ones may be more or less effective for different conditions. And so, yeah, long story short, mental health treatment absolutely works. And we're, we're really at probably the best place we've ever been in terms of just having a wider array of options, you know, and different, different kinds of therapy, different kinds of medication for people to try. And I, I think that's a really important thing you mentioned there about that we're in the, the best spot we've ever been because the mental health field is kind of a newer field within medicine. And so it, it appears to me, at least as someone who's pretty new at this, that we're constantly finding new things, we're making new connections, we're learning more. And so it feels like we are progressing at a great rate. And so when we think about therapy, when a lot of people think about mental health treatment, we think about the things that we've seen in movies or TV shows, much of which is dramatized and also typically based on an older understanding of how mental health treatment works. And so yeah. moving forward, it's only assumedly going to get better and we're already better than we were at all of this five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, things like that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, I'm kind of a, a student of the history of mental illness as well. I like looking back at some of, you know, where did things start or whatever. But, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize the first psychiatric medication only came along in the mid 1950s. Wow. You know, and that was that was a pretty famous medicine called Thorazine, and that was like the first thing that really treated schizophrenia. So, you know, prior to the mid-1950s, there really were no modern psychiatric medications. So you look at, you know, just where we've come in the past, what, 60 years now, I guess, uh, you know, a lot of advances, at least in terms of some of the medication options. And yeah. then, you know, on the therapy side, there's been an explosion of, you know, really uh, research-based therapy approaches. Yeah. So one, one last point that I wanted to make here, we talked a bit about it, but you are, if you're, you know, going in to see a new therapist or something, you are fully within your rights to say, and hopefully they ask, but to say, hey, here's what I've done before. Here's what I found helpful. Here's what I didn't find helpful with other therapists, with other mental health professionals, right? You should have those conversations. There's no, you shouldn't worry about, hey, I'm going to offend them if I say that this other therapist I didn't like or something like that, right? You should give them the information that might be helpful. Oh, yeah, you should give it to them. And it, it may be surprising to find that some therapists aren't even going to ask you, <laughs> you know, that question, <laughs> which they should, you know, yeah. like, what, what treatment have you had? What worked? What didn't work? What did you like? What did you not like? But you should absolutely provide that. Um, and I think the other part of that, too, is, is for the, for the uh, patient or client, and I use both terms, but, you know, the person to um, uh, also be open. So the therapist may have new ideas. And so I think it's also important to be open to some things that maybe you don't know about. Yeah. 
So the next one is a pretty huge one, and I think the next two actually there's kind of some subtopics, but the seventh one you wrote about here is unavailability. Yep. That's yep. A, a huge thing, right? Yeah, huge. And here we're getting into some of the like larger societal issues here. But, uh, you know, some people, based on uh, where they live, they don't have access to very good mental health treatment or any mental health treatment. And, you know, particularly you think about rural areas or other areas where people are, are not as well served. Uh, you know, you may not have um, a counselor, a psychologist, psychiatrist within 100 miles. And, uh, you know, that's pretty striking to realize that, you know, here we are in 21st century America. But um, there are places where there are few or no adequately trained mental health professionals. So what what are the options there? I mean, that sounds like a pretty big downer. What do we, what do, we do if that's if that's the, the case for you or for your friend yeah. or for I mean, well, you? Yeah. So the, the what I've seen. A lot of people do is, you know, they get in the car and they have to drive two hours to go see a therapist. And, you know, I'm here in Kentucky, which outside of, you know, a couple of larger cities is a really rural state. And so uh, it's not unusual at all. You hear people driving an hour or two to go find a therapist or a psychiatrist, um, which is very inconvenient, but it's certainly better than no treatment at all. The other thing, which is kind of a newer thing, is... Uh, You'll, you're probably familiar with this, but it's called telehealth or tele, mm -hmm. telepsychology, telepsychiatry, you know, where you now have these internet connections with maybe your local health department or, you know, something like that. So you go there and then they will have a therapist from an urban area that's, that's online with you on a video call who can actually talk to you and provide some care that way. So what's the, what are your thoughts on that? Because it, it is a huge area that's kind of exploding as we see, you know, Skype and FaceTime and, and, you know, all these different apps where you can connect with people that are nowhere near you. But with that obviously comes maybe more of the concerns about confidentiality or things like that. You know, what yeah, are your, yeah. I mean, how do people know that that person is a regular normal person who is qualified? I mean, it, it feels very different than walking into somebody's office and closing a door. Yeah, it's, it's a real... To me, it's a still a real gray area, and I, I have a lot of skepticism still about quote-unquote online therapy uh, because some of it is really highly unregulated. So, you know, you don't really know if that quote online therapist, if they have a credential, if they're well-trained, if they're licensed. Anybody can pretty much now hang out their online shingle and say, hey, I'm an online web therapist, and, you know, hey, hook up with me for therapy. So, you know, I think it's sort of like any new area. You have to be really careful. And I would steer somebody, you know, what's, what's now, I think, more reputable is, you know, your local hospital or your medical center may have these telehealth connections with rural clinics. And so, you know, you know that you're talking to a licensed professional because it's running through your hospital or through your healthcare network. I would be much more wary of just going online and, you know, here's, you know, John Doe, online therapist who may be in Bermuda or somewhere. I mean, you don't even know where they are. So there's also issues about providing therapy across state lines. So if I'm licensed in Kentucky and I decide to be an online therapist and now I've got a, a patient or a client in Arizona, is that really legal? My state would say no because I'm not licensed in Arizona. Right. So uh, there, it's it's that's still a huge area, I think, with a lot of potential problems. Right, and that's I mean, as we were talking about things growing and progressing, I would say that's probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, kind of ethical things that the field is trying to sort through right now is what goes along with that. You know, what if you lose an internet connection halfway through? You know, things like that. So, what are all the ethical considerations around that? So oh, yeah, I, I, I'm probably in the same boat as you, where I would say if you can see someone in person, right? I, I, I yeah. just feel like there's a different kind yeah. of ability to, to make a connection there. But yeah. if, if that's not an option, right, some people are not going to drive an hour or two hours to see treatment, especially if you're already kind of wary of it. So if, if that's your only option, do so in kind of a smart manner, make sure you do your research, you know, look up local hospitals and things like you were saying. Yeah, I think that's true. And yeah, the other thing, what if you're online in a counseling session and 
your person you're helping says, oh, hey, I'm suicidal and I've got access to a weapon or something. I mean, how are you going to intervene? You know, you're, you're three hours away. I mean, it's just a, a whole bunch of problems there. Yeah. I get sent links all the time from friends about this, this new app or this new app that are talking about being either therapy apps or providing some type of therapeutic service. And I'm, I'm always pretty skeptical. I, I believe that they could be helpful, but I, obviously I don't think that necessarily those should be a, a, a substitute for a mental health relationship or, or a therapeutic relationship or anything like that. Yeah, and I'm, I'll give you a preview. I'm actually thinking about a post on mental health apps that I'm working on, but uh, because there's a, there's a ton of apps, like you say, and I think the best advice on that is use them as, a, as an adjunct to therapy or use them with professional guidance. Now, some you can use on sort of a self-help basis, but they certainly don't replace you know, therapy, you know, they can be useful tools. Some of them are great for like relaxation or meditation or just things that you can do on your own, but they're certainly not a substitute for actual therapy. Yeah. If you do end up writing that post, I'd love to have you back on because I get that question pretty often in regards to, you know, mindfulness apps, because there's a million of those or, you know, uh, negative thought pattern apps or things like that. So yeah, if, if you write that post, we'll gladly have you back on. Yeah, it's it's coming. I just don't know when yet, but it's, it's somewhere in somewhere down the pipeline there. <laughs> okay, so the the last one, and I, it makes sense that this is the last one because I think this one also is one of the bigger ones that has a lot of subsets to it. But practical barriers. Yeah, this is maybe the biggest one, just in terms of numbers of people this would affect. So this this would include things like you don't have health insurance or you don't have enough money to pay for mental health care, or you don't have enough money to even just pay your co-payment with your health insurance, or you don't have a car to get to health care, or you don't have somebody to take care of your kids when you go to your appointments, or you can't get off work to go to your appointments. So all of these things that are huge, huge issues that I, I found for a lot of people, this is the number one issue. So they may say, I would love to have mental health care. I need mental health care. I have no insurance. I have no way to pay for it. I have no way to get there. And so, you know, these, these are obviously big problems. No, I would agree. I think the most common responses that people give me about seeking any kind of mental health treatment is, I can't afford it, or I don't know how to find one, which we've touched on briefly, or, you know, things like that. So those are very real. I mean, right, people don't have insurance or insurances. A lot of them don't cover mental health treatments, especially, you know, I know there's a lot of limbo in the area of, of the insurance area in the United States. We keep having, it feels like monthly votes on these things. So yeah. what's the what's the reality for people today? Uh, you know, I always just try to talk to people about, okay, so what are your personal barriers? And then can we work through some of those or can we help you work through some of those? So somehow some of the easier ones, maybe you just, it's a transportation issue. So maybe you can get somebody to give you a ride. Or if you're in a city, maybe you can get on the bus. Um, you know, so that's one thing. Or can you get somebody to watch your kids while you go see the doctor? That one you can usually work around. The insurance thing is a bigger issue. And, you know, ironically, you know, with the expansion of healthcare in recent years, we now have more people on insurance than we've ever had. So in some ways, that's gotten better and more people do have access to care. And now, as you said, in the political climate, we don't know if some of that's going to be rolled back or what's going to happen. But that's that's now a huge concern because guess what? When people get insurance for the first time in their life, guess what? They use it. You know, they yeah. they want to use that access, that health care. And so to have it and then now potentially have some of it rolled back or taken away is a, is a real fear that people have. But, uh, you know, then the other thing is, can you find... Um, lower cost options. And so, you know, some people are going to qualify for things like Medicare or Medicaid, depending on their age or if they have disabilities. Uh, and those, you know, are government run programs, which help help a lot of people. Um, I wrote a post one time about a lot of universities have training clinics, you know, and in fact, I, I direct one at my university where, you know, you have graduate students learning how to be therapists. And so they're providing very, very low cost therapy. And so a lot of universities have one of those where, you know, you could go get therapy for, you know, 10 bucks a session or something. And so, you know, there are those kind of options to look at as well. 
but I think you almost have to just sit down and talk through, you know, what are my particular barriers and then how can we perhaps brainstorm ways to try to work around some of those. But the, the cost issue is, is a huge one. It's just a really, really tremendous barrier. So are there ways that we either as people in the mental health field, I know we have a chunk of our audience that's there, or people that are in a ministry field, I know we have a chunk of audience there. How, how can we advocate for people? Because I know that, that that's part of both of those roles, we would probably say, is to help advocate for people, help them to get treatment. How can we help move towards people being able to afford things or maybe the political things, right? It's not taking a partisan stand, but taking a political stand of, hey, we think that everybody should be able to have access to these things. Or, I mean, what are the very real steps that we can take to help to help people? Oh, boy. What a great question, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And, and, you know, in, in, in my role as an advocate for quite a few years now, a lot of that has included legislative advocacy. And so talking to your legislators at the state level and the federal level and when these bills come through that are going to impact mental health care and that may either provide increased access or may in some ways then later decrease access, we have to just keep being really vocal. And there's a lot of, as you may know, active networks. And every time a bill goes up, you get the lobbyists and you get the messages coming in and people say, hey, we're, we're, we're supporting this or, hey, we're against this. And the legislators do hear that and they do listen to it. And so I think having that voice of the people is so, so important. And having these well-trained advocates who have these networks where they're on top of this and they can send out these email alerts and you can send letters in to your, to your congressman and you, you have a quick response system that you can always let, let the legislators know, hey, this is a good thing for mental health care or this is a bad thing for mental health care. So, you know, if you're new to this world, if what I'm saying is like, you're thinking, man, I don't even know what, what this guy's talking about. But if you want to get involved in that level of advocacy, it's pretty easy to do. You just need to find out, you know, who in your area, who are the mental health groups who are doing this kind of thing and, you know, talk to them. And so sometimes they'll have days when you can go to your state capitol and you might have a rally or you might go talk to legislators or you might just send in an email or whatever you feel comfortable doing. But there's definitely more room in this space if more people want to get involved as really active advocates for some of these legislative issues. And they're so important. You know, I think we can't afford to be quiet. We have to all take the responsibility to say that we're going to have a voice because if we don't have our voice, then legislators are going to do what they want to do. Yeah, and I think knowing that, I mean, you just said there that it is easy to get involved. And I know that that may come across as weird to people because these are some issues that seem very big or very overwhelming or how can I possibly influence Congress or the Senate or whatever it is, right? But I think there are some really fantastic ways. I mean, I know ACA has a newsletter or a mailing list that's all about legislative things or, you know, so yeah. I got an email a couple of weeks ago. There's a bill in the Senate right now that's been proposed about Medicaid covering health care for all seniors or something like that. Uh, right. I looked into it briefly and then haven't looked back into it. Uh, but, you know, there's things like that. I know that local chapters of, you know, AFSP or things like that have yep. areas of specifically like people who are interested in legislative things. And so they'll send you an email about, you know, bills being introduced and things like that. I know one right. thing that I found really helpful in kind of this huge insurance debate back and forth recently in the past couple months is look for, or at least I've found, looking for what the medical associations are are responding, how they're responding, what they're saying, right? Because you have yes. kind of two political sides sparring and maybe you like one better than the other, or maybe you don't care for either of them. But looking at what the medical associations are saying, because they're not partisan, they're not trying to get a win on either side. Their job for existing is to to help people. And so I remember like when uh, Graham Cassidy was you know, being debated, there was statements from almost every major medical group in the United States saying, hey, this is, this is going to hurt people, not help them. So things right. like that, because those groups are, are there to be a voice for people, not for one side or the other, which can get, you know, we can get really bogged down in this side says, this side says, you know, whatever, whatever. Yeah, that's true. And as you mentioned, most of the professional groups all have lobbyists, you know, so they have people monitoring this. Um, a group I'm affiliated with for psychologists is the American Psychological Association. They have a hugely active 
uh, group, you know, that works on legislative issues. Most of the other professional mental health fields have similar groups. Um, another group I would put a plug in for if you're a non-professional, if you're just someone interested in mental health or you, you know, you struggle with mental health or your family uh, struggles with mental health is NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which also does a tremendous amount of advocacy. And so if you're just a regular person who wants to get involved in advocacy, that's one really easy group to affiliate with because they have um, you know, at least here in the United States, they have local and state chapters for NAMI, so you can plug into one pretty easily. Absolutely. I know that you mentioned that your church is pretty active in providing some mental health services. It helps partner with kind of the mental health field some. What is the, the church's role? Because we have a lot of ministers and youth pastors and things like that listening. What, what can their role be in all of this? Yeah, that's an interesting area. Um, I'm, I'm from a Protestant uh, Christian background, and my church is a uh, fairly large United Methodist church uh, here in my city. And uh, for probably close to 15 years, they've had a health and wellness ministry in the church. And so these tend to be people who are members of the church who are also in health care. So we have had nurses, doctors, dentists, uh, myself, um, physical therapists, you know, a whole variety of people who are working in healthcare, And so that group has sponsored a lot of health and wellness related activities within our congregation, health fairs, blood pressure screenings, uh, pedometer challenges, you know, a whole variety of things. And then part of that, which I, you know, I've perhaps tried to encourage has been, you know, looking at stress, maybe looking at depression, anxiety, some more mental health type issues. And it's interesting how I think more and more churches have, have taken on this focus of wanting to have some group within the church that actually works on health and wellness issues. And, uh, you know, if you go online, you see that it seems like a lot of churches have gotten on board with that. Yeah, and I know that there's a variety of ways to try and help some of these practical barriers, right? I was speaking with a, a lead pastor probably a week or two ago who they offer they have a someone they trust that does marriage counseling and they they'll pay for you to go to marriage counseling if that's a thing you know you feel like you need but if you don't stick it all the way through to the end then you have to pay them back for some of them or something like that so trying to help alleviate the practical financial cost or things like that yeah absolutely and and I'm actually a great fan of uh, you know pastoral counseling I think there's some tremendously helpful people out there. Um, I've also, in my hospital work, worked with some great chaplains, you know, in the hospital setting who actually have had extensive uh, mental health training, you know, and, and so there's definitely such a role because, you know, if you talk about kind of our current approach to how we talk about recovery, it's very holistic. And, you know, as you know, it's mind, body, and spirit. And so you've got to look at mental health, physical health, spiritual health. I think all of those are incredibly important. So are there ways for all eight of these, for churches or ministers or leaders or volunteers or, or whoever, to help push back against some of these barriers to help people overcome you know, fear and shame or stigma or limited awareness or feelings that they are a failure if they can't handle these things? Are there ways that we can help kind of fight all, all eight of these? Or would you say some of them can't really be helped? Or uh, You know... As we've talked about, some of these are way more difficult to address than others. But I, I, I do think what we're doing, actually, just in our conversation here, is if you can open a conversation and start talking about it. And so, you know, in the church setting, people may be at various places and how openly they're talking about mental health issues. And so if that's not being openly talked about very much, you know, then you might want to just, you know, have a table, you know, in your fellowship hall and focus on mental health one Sunday or one month or, you know, focus on different aspects of wellness, but just to open the conversation and to show people that, hey, you know, it's okay in this setting to talk about these issues as well. Because when you give that message that you're willing to talk openly, it's, it's, it, I think it gives people a sense of, uh, you know, relief, you know, hey, this is a safe place that I can bring up some of my concerns. Absolutely. Well, hey, thank you so much for joining us to talk about some of these. There will be links in the show notes to both these articles as well as a number of other things that we've talked about. We've mentioned some other articles of yours. Uh, I would strongly recommend, listener, that you connect with 
David, uh, he's got some fantastic content in, like I mentioned, a wide variety of areas. If you want to connect further with him, you can read any of that on davidsussman.com. You can connect with him on Twitter at David Sussman or on Facebook if you search for David Sussman PhD. Uh, if you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at Robert Vore. David, Dr. Sussman, any closing thoughts for our listeners today? Uh, Robert, I really just want to thank you for this opportunity. Um, I've actually been a fan of your podcast for a while. I think you and Steve are doing a great job. This is a tremendously important area, and I appreciate that you're really taking the time to bring some useful and I think very high-quality information about mental health uh, to the to the listening audience. So I want to thank, thank you, you for your work. Yeah, well, thank you. That's very encouraging. It means a lot. Folks, there are, we know that there are very real reasons not to get mental health treatment, but if, if you've heard nothing from this conversation, there are reasons to get mental health treatment. There are reasons that counteract most of those reasons why not to some of those barriers. So definitely work for yourself and for the people around you, the people you love to try and help overcome some of those barriers. Go read these posts. They have some more information than we've talked about here. Thank you so much, Dr. Sussman. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.